Illusions, illusions, and more illusions. This week on The Backdrop. My apologies to Joe Bluth. That's illusions, not illusions. This week, we're going to unpack the many, many references that John makes to other parts of Scripture in chapter 1, verses 35 to 51. There are so many of them that we probably aren't going to spend a whole lot of time on any single one, but I wanted to run through a bunch of them, not because they greatly change our understanding of the passage, but because they kind of flesh it out. They give a little bit more context for it and fill in our understanding of what John's trying to do in this story. And the way I thought we might run through these illusions is just to take them as they come in the passage and not in any order of importance or anything like that, but just as we come across them, as we go through the passage, starting in verse 35, uh, we'll talk through the illusions that we find there. Again, this is the calling of the first disciples by Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 35 to 51, which I preached on this past Sunday. The first thing is an allusion to earlier in chapter 1, really, and I thought this was interesting how many times the word see or something like it appear in this passage. As you read through, starting in verse 35, you see that they see Jesus walking. And John says, behold, the Lamb of God. And then Jesus turns and saw them following him. And he said, what are you looking for? He says to them, come and see. So they saw. Then in verse 42, Jesus looks at Simon. Then Philip says, come and see. Then in verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael and says, Behold, I saw you under the fig tree. And then again in verse 50, I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than these. You will see the heaven opened up. So you see, no pun intended, John is really hitting hard this theme of seeing because that's the whole point. The witnesses to Jesus have seen him and understood him and then invite others to come and see. So thought that was interesting as a place to start. Later on in verse 36, John says, Behold the Lamb of God. And that image, Lamb of God, is, as most interpreters have taken it, to be a reference to the Old Testament and the sacrificial system where lambs were brought for sacrifices. A lot of uh, scholars have thought that that is actually a reference to the Passover lamb. The problem with that is that earlier in chapter 1, when John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world— That's not the function that the Passover lamb played. The Passover lamb was not one that was taking away the sins of Israel. It was the one that was protecting Israel from death in the the last of the 10 plagues in in the Exodus story. So the Passover lamb is probably not the reference that John is making when he says, behold, the lamb of God. There were lots of times in the Old Testament in the sacrificial system when lambs were used to stand in place of the person um, and were seen as, in some sense, taking the sin of the person upon themselves. Marianne Mai Thompson, in her commentary, argues that probably when John calls Jesus the Lamb of God, he doesn't have any particular reference in mind, but more he's, he's alluding more generally to the various sacrifices of lambs that might atone or cleanse in the Old Testament. Likewise, he's probably referring to Isaiah 53, where the servant, sometimes called the suffering servant, is compared to a lamb that bears the sins of many. So she argues that here in John and also in Revelation, when Jesus appears as a lamb, 
It's probably just drawing on the many images of lambs as sacrifices that atone for sin in the Old Testament, not the particular sacrifice of the Passover lamb, because that doesn't really fit with the imagery and the um, theological significance that John is putting on here. All right, third illusion as we keep reading through the passage, the disciples of John who have followed Jesus respond to Jesus's question, what are you looking for, with this answer, Rabbi, where are you staying? Now, on the surface level, all they're asking for is, can we come with you? Can we come and stay with you and learn from you like, like any follower of a rabbi would? But I kind of like to think that the verb that is used there, staying, which is translated abiding in other parts of the New Testament, is significant. That John, like he so often is, is presenting both a surface level, but also a deeper meaning, a deeper reference that that is also um, going on too. So that verb, staying, again, it's sometimes translated abiding or remaining. And if you are familiar with the book of John, that might ring some bells because it's the same word that's used in John 15 when Jesus tells the story of the vine and the branches, comparing himself to the vine and inviting his followers to abide in him, to remain in him and be connected to God through him. So on the one hand, the disciples are simply asking a factual question. Where, where are you sleeping? Can we come with you? But at another level, I think they're also asking, or John is portraying them as asking, where are you abiding? What are you connected to? We sense that there is something that you are connected to at a deep level that is giving you life, that is giving you power, and we want to be connected. We want to abide there too. John chapter 15, the vine and the branches, is so central to John's idea of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And so it really makes sense to me, um, and I find it really interesting, that the um, that the disciples, these first disciples of Jesus, are kind of giving a preview of that idea here in this passage, that they want to stay with Jesus in both the literal sense, but also in the more metaphorical sense that we find in chapter 15. Later on in this passage, as Nathanael is getting invited by Philip to come and see Jesus, his response is the famous, can anything good come from Nazareth? This is not really an allusion to a different part of scripture, I suppose, but Nazareth at the time was pretty much a backwater. Mary Ann Thompson describes Nazareth as a small Jewish town given mainly to agriculture and that there is little evidence of adoption of Roman culture there. So this is what's going on underneath Nathaniel's question. It's kind of the looking down upon this tiny backwater town with no culture and nothing really to recommend it. And saying, could anything good come from there? We, of course, with eyes to see, who know the rest of the story, know that, of course, that's the sort of place that God would use to be the home of his son. As Paul says it later on in the New Testament, he's used the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. I think that's an interesting thing for us to keep in mind as we live in L.A. in the 21st century, that Jesus is from this small agricultural town that is maybe most marked by its not having adopted the cosmopolitan cultured ways of the surrounding Roman Empire. But moving on, this is an actual illusion. This is the fifth thing that I wanted to highlight. And that is what Jesus says to Nathaniel when he shows up. He says, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. 
which seems like a very strange thing for Jesus to say upon meeting Nathaniel. Like, is he flattering him because Nathaniel sees himself as being truthful? Is he just saying something factual about him? Like, what's going on there? And there may be more to it than this, but at least something that's going on is Jesus is just kind of having some fun. He's making a play on words because when he refers to Nathaniel as an Israelite, he is referring, of course, to Israel, the grandson of Abraham or Jacob, as he is first known. And he is renamed Israel, which means something like someone who struggles with God after he wrestles with the angel of the Lord in Genesis. Jacob, of course, is known as a deceiver. That's what he's named from the beginning as he grabs his brother's heel coming out of the womb. He deceives his brother Esau. He deceives his uncle trying to win a bride. One of his main character traits is deception. And so calling Nathaniel an Israelite in whom there is no deceit is just an interesting, fun play on words. And maybe there's something more there, too. If you can figure out what that is, I'd love to hear it. But it's not that Jesus is just coming out of nowhere with this reference. In any event, it's an interesting allusion. Right after that, we get the reference of Jesus to having seen Nathanael under the fig tree. Now, this is another thing that could just be a factual, and in fact, it probably was just a factual description of where Nathanael was when Philip came to him. But there is a persistent image in the Old Testament and in some of the Jewish literature that came after the Old Testament, but before the days of Jesus, it's sometimes referred to as second temple literature. This image of someone sitting underneath a fig tree is an image of abundance, kind of like how the Old Testament refers to um, the promised land as being a land of milk and honey. Um, It's not that there's actual milk flowing or actual honey flowing. It's just that this idea of milk and honey was a common image for abundance in that time. And someone sitting under their own fig tree is likewise an image of abundance. Mary M.I. Thompson points out that perhaps Jesus saying that is not too surprising given the amount of fig trees in the area at that time. And again, it may mean nothing. But I don't think it is an accident, especially given the picture of abundance that Jesus is going to show in the very next chapter, which we'll look at next week when Meredith preaches. John seems to weave these references to the the themes that he wants to highlight in Jesus's story often enough that I don't think it's an accident. So just like I was pointing out how many times the word see or something like it shows up in this passage, that's because that's one of the themes in this first chapter of the book is people coming to see Jesus. And so here, this reference to a person sitting under a fig tree, which is a symbol of abundance, I don't think that's accidental either. But I don't know that John is trying to make some grand point with it. I think he just likes throwing a lot of these allusions and themes into his text um, because it makes it richer and kind of drives the point home a little bit more. There's lots of authors who write fiction or nonfiction today that would do something similar. The words they choose, the images they choose, the um, metaphors that they include in the text They're all there to build on each other and build on the themes that they're trying to highlight. So I think John might be doing something similar here, too, when he refers to a fig tree. So then the next allusion, uh, Jesus says in verse 50, you will see greater things than these. 
And most scholars take this as an allusion to the signs that Jesus is going to show in the rest of the book of John. And it starts in the very next chapter at the wedding at Cana. He shows his first sign. And the signs, as Meredith's going to talk about a bit next week, are not just um, fun things that show that Jesus has miraculous powers. There There are things that point to something deeper that is true about who Jesus is, why he's come, what God is up to in Jesus and through Jesus. So the greater things than these that Jesus is referring to start immediately following this in the passage. Another interesting thing here is that the you in verse 50 shifts from singular to plural. Jesus starts talking just to Nathaniel saying, I saw you under the fig tree. But then the second sentence he says, the you there is plural. You will see greater things than these. That you is plural. He's he's speaking to the whole audience at that point, saying you all are going to see greater things than these. So that's kind of interesting as well. And then Jesus says in verse 51, amen, amen, I tell you. From what I've read, most of the scholars seem to think that Jesus is the only person in history who has ever said amen, amen, back to back like that. He seems to be using it as a marker of you can really trust this thing that I am about to say. This is this is deeply true. And of course, there are examples of amen being used as a way of sealing a prayer of saying, like, let it be so in the Old Testament. And so John is referring to that and Jesus is referring to that. But the double amen is fairly distinctive to Jesus's speaking patterns. So a lot of scholars believe that this is this is really how Jesus talked, that he had some sort of distinct way of saying amen, amen, when he wanted to emphasize a point, and that that's preserved in uh, stories like this in, in the Gospel of John. Again, does this, does this deepen our understanding of the passage in a profound way? No, but it is kind of fun, nonetheless. And then the last two allusions that we're going to look at come from the very end of this passage, where Jesus says that you're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending on this son of man. The first allusion is to, and anybody who is familiar with the book of Genesis may have caught this, it's an allusion to the story of Jacob's dream, Jacob's ladder, as it's sometimes called, where Jacob dreams of a ladder that's connecting heaven and earth with angels ascending and descending. And this happens in Genesis 28. And Jacob's reaction when he wakes up from that dream is to say, wow, I didn't know that I was in a holy place, but God must truly be in this place. That was his reaction to the dream. And so um, scholars like Marianne Mai Thompson point out that Jesus is probably playing on the same idea. Instead, he's putting himself as the ladder that the angels are ascending and descending on. Not because there's something particular about angels ascending and descending, but because he is saying, I am the one who is linking God to people. I am the one who is bringing God to earth. In the same way that Jacob reacted to the ladder dream by saying, oh, wow, God must be in this place. I am the proof that God is in this place. I am the link here that is um, ensuring God's presence with you. In fact, God promises Jacob as a part of that story in which the dream takes place to be with him. God makes a promise to Jacob to not leave him, to be with him. And so Jesus is drawing that in here as well, that God's presence has truly come in Jesus and will be with us. And the last illusion that we're going to look at in this passage is when Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. This is a strange way of speaking. It was not a Greek way of speaking at all. So it is coming out of the Hebrew or the Aramaic language that Jesus and his followers would have spoken. 
And scholars have debated what exactly it is that Jesus means when he refers to himself as a son of man. Most of the time that that phrase shows up in the Old Testament, it's an idiom, a way of saying a human being. So the most likely scenario, and this is the one that Marianne Mai Thompson argues for, is that by saying son of man, what Jesus is doing and what John is doing by using that, those words as well, is to emphasize Jesus's humanity, that Jesus truly was a human being. He is not just a son of God or a divine figure. He is also a son of man, a human being. The vast majority of the time when that phrase is used in the New Testament, it's Jesus who is saying it. And so it's obvious that he is making some sort of point there by using what is kind of a strange turn of phrase. And emphasizing his humanity may very well be what that is. The thing is, if that's all Jesus is saying, that he's emphasizing his humanity, then why wouldn't the authors of the New Testament, who are writing in Greek where this idiom doesn't exist, why wouldn't they have translated it into something that communicated that idea, like human being? But for some reason, they preserve Jesus's way of saying it, son of man, where presumably there are other things that Jesus says that when they get translated to Greek, the authors make adjustments to fit and get the point across in a new language, just like any translator would. One possible answer to that is that there is another passage in the Old Testament that uses that phrase, son of man, and that is in the book of Daniel, specifically Daniel 7, 13, in which God's kingdom is given to one like a son of man, that after all of these beastly kingdoms, now God's kingdom comes in the form of a son of man. In that story, this son of man is representing Israel. It's God's people and the kingdom of God in that sense. So it continues to be a reference to humanity, but there's also a heavenly source for that humanity where God's kingdom is coming from heaven to earth. This is another one of those illusions where it's not abundantly clear what exactly is going on here. It seems very likely that Jesus is referring to his own humanity. But if there's something more, something that in some way is referring to Daniel and emphasizing the heavenly nature of this human being that's before them, that's possible too. But scholars are very much divided on that issue, and no one is entirely sure what's going on, although there are lots of theories that have been proposed. All in all, I think I tend to agree with Miriam I. Thompson when she writes, Son of man, as such, does not denote a pre-existent being or figure. The word was in the beginning. Son of man, human being, denotes the word made flesh. It identifies Jesus as the person in whom God is revealed. That seems to fit very nicely with what John is trying to do in the broader passage, and so I think that we will leave it there. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Backdrop as we went through all of the allusions that can be found in the passage and that it helps to bring out some of the richness and texture to the stories that John is telling in the beginning of his gospel. So Meredith will be back next week with her sermon about the wedding in Cana in the beginning part of chapter two of John. So we hope that we will see you on Sunday at our house, the normal time, 4.30, or for dinner at 5.30. Until then, have a great week. We love you all. Bye.